Well, the way I see it this morning, we have ourselves a little bit of a dilemma. You see, as I was preparing for this, I was doing my dry runs. This took me about an hour and 10 minutes to deliver this sermon. And I know that all of you guys are used to a 40 to 45 minute sermon. So the way I see it, we got one or two options. Either by God's grace, I'll be able to deliver this in 45 minutes, or by God's grace, you'll be able to bear with me the extra time. So, okay. I just want to say that uh, I do consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to be able to come up here and by God's grace, try to communicate the truth of his word to you. And I also recognize that while this is a privilege, I also have a great responsibility to rightly divide his word. And my main hope this morning is that God is glorified in this. But secondly, that God is glorified in this through us and our response to his word. Uh, As you see the title screen behind me, the reason I titled this message A Simple Greeting is because I'm sure each and every one of you have had times in your life when you set out to perform a task, to do something, and you realize that this isn't as simple as what you thought it was going to be. And usually, quite commonly for me, one of two things will happen. Frustration will set in, it'll overcome me, and I'll just be done with it, and I'll move on about whatever else it is that I wanted to do. Or you'll work through those frustrations, and you'll complete a task, and at the end, you find a lot of joy. And that's kind of what happened with me with this text, this Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, because there's no special reason why I picked this, uh, but I picked it. Uh, Pastor Flager asked me to preach about a month ago, and after I picked it, you know, I, I read it, I reread it, uh, I read through the book of Galatians multiple times, I read about the life of Paul because he's the one that wrote the letter, and nothing was coming to me. I, I didn't know what God wanted me to communicate to you, and I started to get frustrated. I didn't want to get up here and just give you a bunch of historical context and not let you walk out of here with any application. But then I thought of 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if that's true, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, was breathed out by God also, and there's something there for us. So I stuck with it, and that's where my joy came in over these last four to five days, just finalizing this and the message just solidifying in my mind. And my hope this morning is to be able to communicate that joy to you so that you will also have the same joy that I have in this text. We're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to start with the reading of the word to Galatians chapter 1, or turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just ask at this time that you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to receive it with gladness and with joy. Help us to see, Lord, that your word transcends time, it transcends culture, it transcends people. 
It is applicable to the Israelite that was in captivity in Babylon. It's applicable to the first century believer in the church of Galatia. It's applicable to the 16th century peasant who's just starting to learn how to read your word. And it is applicable and it applies to us in our lives. I just pray, Lord, that at this time your spirit just come and clear all the clutter out of our minds and our hearts. and Just help us to receive your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, we'll start this off to get you guys in the context of this text. But I've got to ask a couple questions. And they're going to be a little silly. But I have to ask them. Who in here, and I want you to raise your hand. Who in here does not, that's the key word, does not have an imagination? Everybody's got one. Okay. I've got to ask this next question. That's going to be a little silly also, but I have to ask it. Who in here does not know how to use their imagination? I'm sure you're using it right now thinking, why is he asking me all these silly questions? Okay. Well, we're going to use it right now. I want you to imagine that you're living in the first century in the years about 47 A.D., And you live about 600 miles north of Egypt across the Mediterranean Sea. And you're from a country called Galatia. You're from a city within this country and it's called Lystra. Now you're just your typical run-of-the-mill pagan. And you do what pagans do. You see, your government and your culture tell you that there are these gods. There's multiple gods. And you have to worship them. You have to offer these sacrifices in order to appease these gods. So that it'll go well with you and your family, that you'll be blessed, and that your nation and your culture will be blessed also. And there's even that one story. Do you remember that one? Do you remember that story about how special your gods are and how that one time that one God came to earth and he mated with a woman and they had a baby. And that baby grew up and had the supernatural strength. He could bench press like 10,000 pounds. And then it doesn't just stop just there. You see... You start to notice that while you're offering these countless sacrifices, you don't really get anything in return. There's not really any change. But hey, everybody's doing it, so you figure this must be the right thing, so you just keep on going about your business. Well, one day, you're on your way to work, and you're walking through the city square, and you see these two gentlemen in the square, and they got a crowd of people around them. You don't recognize these guys. You've never seen them before. So you start to listen to what they say. And first off, the thing that strikes you is they're telling the people that these gods that you've been worshiping, they don't even exist. And then secondly, they tell you that they serve the true and living God. And they say that their God isn't happy with you for worshiping these gods that don't even exist. And then they talk about this problem that you have. They say it's called sin. And they give you some good examples It seems to make sense. And they say that this true and living God that they serve has a standard called perfection. And they clearly show you why you can't meet the standard, but they go even further than that. They say that it is in your nature to do the very opposite of what the standard is. So right now you're feeling pretty bummed, right? First they tell you that your gods don't exist. And then they tell you that they serve this true and living God who has this standard that you can't even keep. And you also do what's completely opposite to what that standard is. Well, then the story takes a turn. There's kind of some good news. They tell you that their God had a son too. The only 
this story is a little bit different than the old story you heard from one of your gods having a son. You see, they say that this son has always existed. He is the same essence and of the same nature of his father. And they say about 45 years ago, this son came to earth, was born of a virgin, and he grew up and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he did these amazing things. And then the people got upset at him and they put him to death. And they describe that, and it's not very pleasant. They say after three days, this son rose again. And they said the reason that all that had to happen was because their true and living God demonstrated his love for us through that action, that whoever believes in this son will be given the gift of everlasting life. And you know, it makes some sense, but you still kind of shrug it off and you go about your business. Well, a few more days later, you notice these guys are still there every day in the city square. And uh, people start coming to them within the city. Lame, sick, crippled people are coming up to these guys. And the leader, he puts his hands on them and he heals them. And you're amazed. I mean, these people are like brand new people. But then there's the one. Do you remember that one? Do you remember that one? When they were talking about that gospel message and that lady came running up. And she had that child in her arms, and the child wasn't even breathing. And she pleaded with the leader to bring her baby back to life. And it was like, as soon as he touched her, you could just see the life rush back into that child. And then they tell you that the reason they do these things is because this Son of God who died for you and rose again gave them the authority to do these things. So it would confirm that the message that they are telling you is true. And then all of a sudden you realize you've been believing a lie. And you respond to that message. You turn away from who you once were and you turn to the Son of God. You cherish, you embrace embrace Him, and you hold fast to that truth. And they stay around for a few more days, a few more weeks, proclaiming this gospel to these other people in the city, hoping that they'll believe too. But they also start meeting with you on a regular basis. And they teach you how to interact with the culture around you. Well, then they come to you one day and they say, we got to go. They say, God wants us to go to other people in other places so that they too can hear the good news of this gospel and can believe. And they leave. Well, days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. It seems just like yesterday they were among you. Then something strange happens again. Two new guys come into the picture. You don't recognize them. But they talk about how they believe in this Son of God also. And uh, what happens next is you bring them back to your group, your meeting place, so you guys can worship the Son of God together. But only their message that they talk about, it's just a little bit different. They say that not only do you have to believe in the Son of God, you have to obey these special rules too to get to heaven. And your memory's a little fuzzy now because you can't, you're not really for sure 100% what the first two guys said, but you know one thing's for sure. You know these two new guys? They can't do any of the new miracles that the original two could. They can't heal a lame or a sick person or bring somebody back to life. Well, the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into months, and uh, slowly people within your body start to believe the message that the two new guys are saying. What I've just done is I've set the context for Galatians chapter 1, the whole book actually. That's what Paul was dealing with. Paul had established the church in Galatia and he had left and he had went back 
He was back in Antioch and word report came back to him that somebody had came in and distorted the truth of the gospel that he had originally preached to him. And that's going to lead us to our first point. Uh, if you can look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is our first point. I don't have a handout in your bulletin, but you can write this down if you want. Distortion of God's word requires action. Let me read that again. Distortion of God's word requires action. Now, I want you to look at these two verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. At its bare minimum, Paul was establishing his authority as an apostle. And also, just the very fact that he's writing this letter, that he just didn't say, well, I'll worry about that church, you know, six years from now, hopefully, if I go on another missionary journey. He goes into action as soon as he hears about distortion occurring in the church. And he's going to write this letter, and he's going to send it to those churches, and he's going to say, circulate it, because the truth has been distorted, and I'm going to write the truth down to you so you'll have it. So just at the very basic sense, he is basically communicating to these people that he is the true apostle. Now, you see, Paul understood that if he didn't do anything, these Galatian believers were going to shipwreck their faith. He had to preserve the truth or this was going to have generational implications. Now, as I was studying this text, I've never really seen this before, but I think this point is here. Do you know that when you defend the truth of the gospel, you're actually preserving it for the next generation? I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. I want to lay the context before we get into the text, but basically in Galatians chapter 1, After this introduction, Paul goes in and he rebukes these Galatian believers. But then he starts to go into detail of what, you know, his past life was like before he actually came and established the church there. And you see, Paul's already dealt with this situation before. Before he ever went and established that church at Galatia, he has dealt with this exact same situation. You see, there was a famine in the land, and Paul was living in Antioch. It was modern-day Syria at the time. And Paul and Barnabas... And Titus were tasked out to go down to Judea to, to give relief to the church down in Jerusalem. So they go down there. The only, there's only one issue, though. They're going down to Jewish Christians, and they have Titus with them. And Titus is a Gentile, so Titus wasn't circumcised, which was requirement of the Mosaic law. Well, apparently there were some false brothers within this Jerusalem church, and that's kind of what Paul was hinting at to the Galatians, that he's already dealt with this. But listen to uh, chapter 2. Verses 3 and 5, it says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And then goes on from there. That's what happens when you follow the PowerPoint. Then you try to clip back to your Bible. But it says, clips in to fly out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That it might be preserved for those Galatian believers because if distortion would have crept in there, that distortion, not that it could have happened, but the implication there is 
when the gospel goes out, it's not going to be the same as what the original message was if you let distortion creep in. So I want to just give you a little bit of an illustration to kind of bring this, bring this point home. Some of you in this room, or some of you may know of someone that uh, has had the experience of being diagnosed with cancer. And everything that goes along with that, the chemo, the radiation, and by God's grace, some people have been delivered from that. You know, they go through the chemo, the radiation, the drugs, the wisdom of the doctors that God gives them, and they get a scan back after all that happens, and it looks like they're cancer-free. Uh, but they still have to go back every so often to have follow-up testing to make sure that that cancer hasn't came back. But some of you know of someone or may have maybe know of someone that actually gets the diagnosis too late or the cancer basically... Uh, the cancer comes in, it comes back, and this time it's, a, it's more aggressive than ever. And the doctor tells you, know, you got two to three weeks left to live. Well, I used to work as a staff nurse on a hospice ward at the bedside, and I would work 12-hour shifts. And when you work 12-hour shifts, you'd be off for three or four days. But usually after you were off for three or four days and you came back to work, there would always be new patients in those hospice beds they would pass away and new people would come in and take their place. And you would get report in the morning or in the evening whenever you were coming into work. And this, this happened a lot of times, but you would uh, be told, you know, so-and-so is in room 122. He's got lung cancer and uh, it's spread to his brain and his bones and his liver. And uh, basically, you know, they would say, we don't know if he's going to make it through the night. So you would start your shift, and one of the first things you would do is you would check on the person that's most critical to see if they're in pain, to see if you could, you know, do something to help keep them comfortable. But I'll never forget, you know, walking into a room, never seen this person before. And in the bed before you might be like a six-foot-two tall man and uh, just a shell of who he once was. Might have weighed 220 pounds in his prime, but laying before you is somebody 70, 75 pounds, maybe 80. And you just know, you know that there is something inside of him, and it's raging like an inferno. There's just cells that are rapidly dividing. And basically, those cells are sucking the life right out of him. At the expense of all other organ systems within the body, they eat up all the nutrients. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is that Paul knew that if he didn't defend the truth, if he didn't stand for the truth of the gospel, then distortion would have ravaged the church like cancer does a body. But to see distortion in the 21st century, it's not like distortion in the 1st century. See, we don't have a bunch of people running around trying to get us to obey the law of Moses. See, as we have been more informed by the written word of God, Satan has had to have gotten more cunning with the distortion. We live in a culture now that values what they think of as reason, that values intellectuals. And you know what? Well, if you believe the Bible, according to our culture and our world, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. And uh, the culture may also tell you that while the Bible has some truth in it, it has errors. And it's not always a direct affront to the scriptures. Sometimes it's more subtle. It goes in behind that. All you got to do is sit down and look at the internet, watch television, listen to secular music, 
all of those things, and we're constantly, constantly being bombarded with things that distort the truth of Scripture and distort the truth of the gospel. And, uh, you know, that just leads me into this sub-point of point number one. How do we do it? How do we keep distortion from ravaging the church like a cancer? How does that happen? Well, I think there's multiple things that we can do. I think we could probably spend the next six weeks of the sermon series on that. But I'm just going to mention one real briefly to you this morning. Discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship is one key to overcoming distortion. Let's face it. How often are we in this building, in the confines of these four walls throughout a week? Three, four hours maybe? How often are we out there in the world where the distortion is? How often? 160-some hours a week? I understand that we all have jobs. I understand that we all have families. We all have other responsibilities. And you know what? God doesn't want us to be in this building 168 hours a week. God has called us to go out into the world and to be salt and light. And uh, he wants us to be in the world, but not to be caught up in the seduction of the world. But my fear, which has been true of myself at times over the last nine years in my Christian walk, is that in the past, instead of me, more of me influencing the world for Christ, I am influenced by the world more so at times. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 15. And this is where I'm going to try to drive this point home. Just to lay the context, uh, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to believers. You guys are very familiar with this passage. I think I've heard it preached a few times before from the pulpit. And he tells this Ephesus church, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Who are the saints? It's not the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds, and teachers. Well, yes, it is them, but it's also the believers. If you're a truly born-again believer in Christ, you are a saint. And at its basic level, the, pers- the reason that, Paul- the reason that those, were- those people were given to the church was to equip us to do the work of the ministry. Then he goes on down. If you skip down to verse... Uh, Verse 14, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I just can't help to see it. I can't help to see it. It, To me, it just sticks right out there the concept of discipleship in this that we get equipped to do the work of the ministry and i want to say that uh the work of the ministry at its basic most core level is discipleship that's the basic most core level of the work of the ministry there's other things that are the work of the ministry i will definitely say that but at its basic level it's discipleship and discipleship at its most basic level I haven't studied this in depth, but I would try to make a good case that it would be one-to-one. When we are outside of these walls and we're meeting with people one-to-one and discipling them. Now, we're still left with a little bit of a dilemma. If you're a truly born-again believer in this room and you feel that you're not yet equipped to do the work of the ministry, what I'm going to suggest today 
is that you need to be discipled. Now, discipleship can occur multiple ways. It can occur up here, people preaching. It can occur in our, our groups, our focus groups, Wednesday night services. But I think it can go a little bit further than that, too. And I'm not saying discipleship doesn't occur in those areas because it does. But there's one other thing. If you're in this room this morning and you're a mature believer and you understand the basic foundations of the faith, it don't mean you have to be a theological expert, but you have a basic grasp of core truths of the Bible and how to apply God's Word in the 21st century, then you need to seek out someone to disciple if you're not already doing so. And here's the reason. Here's, here's why this is important. It's not just me saying it, trying to browbeat you with discipleship. If you knew that discipleship affected this distortion that can possibly creep into our minds, then I don't see how you would not want to be involved in this process, whether you are the discipler or you are the disciplee. Because at its basic level, if we're going to keep distortion out of the body, then everybody has to be involved. Now, there's one more thing before we move on to the next point. I've talked a lot about believers and discipling. It's almost in relation that that only occurs between two believers. That's not true. We left out the unbeliever. It's in its very infancy, discipleship. You could even call it pre-discipleship. God uses his word and his workmanship, and that's you, believer. You're his workmanship, which is you, basically to deliver an unbeliever from the consuming power that the distortion of the world has over them. And that's going to move us into our next point. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, this is our second point. Our, our triumph over the world is found in Christ. Let me read that one more time. Our triumph over the world is found in Christ. Let's read the text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our, our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I want you to focus on two phrases within this text that I think are very important. Deliver us and the present evil age. But we're not going to talk about them in the order that they occur in the text because in real time they don't occur in that order. We're in the present evil age before we're delivered from it. So let's take the first one I mentioned, the present evil age. What is it? Well, one can conclude from these verses it's safe to imply that Paul was assuming that at least some of the readers of his letter used to be consumed by it since they are now delivered from it. Do you see the passive nature in this text that I'm saying? To be delivered here implies that the individual whom has been delivered was passive in that deliverance. Someone had to work that deliverance on their behalf. And we're going to get into that in just a second. That's the, to me, that's the best part of this point. Uh, but first, we still need to figure out what is the present evil age. Turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you, Paul's talking again to the church at Ephesus. And you, talking to believers, were, this is a past action, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that text, it talks about, it's talking about what, you know, what an unbeliever is in the present evil age. Passions of the flesh, dead in your trespasses and sins, carries out the desires in the body, desires of the body and the mind, and by nature is a child of wrath. It seems to me that that's describing someone who is consumed. And what is even more befuddling to me, well, I guess it's not befuddling because before I came to Christ at 23 years old, I did the same thing. What's more befuddling to me is that an unbeliever will say in his heart that I'm a good person. I do nice things. I help people. Hey, God. Hey, God, look at me. I'm not that bad, am I? Well, the question then becomes... Who defines what is good? Does the text, how it describes an individual, does that person define what is good? Or does the authority of God's word define what is good? I think you guys get the picture. We're not going to get into that. Moving on. Let's go back to the text. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Now the next phrase that I want you to look at is deliver us. I don't want to talk about how he delivers us just yet. What I do want to talk about is what the result of that deliverance is. Turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Okay, just in context, Paul's writing to Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes in the dispersion at the beginning of the letter. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as to those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Do you see it, believer? We're to speak and to act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty is Christ. We are under Christ and his headship. The liberty within this framework of a believer being in Christ and by being in Christ, they now have the freedom to obey Christ. They're no longer consumed by the present evil age. But we still left out one very important piece to the equation. How do you get How do you get from James chapter 2 to Ephesians chapter 2? How do you go from being dead in your trespasses and sins, carrying out the passions of the flesh, doing the desires of your body and mind, and by nature being a child of wrath, to being under the law of liberty? How does that happen? Five letters, one syllable, G, R, 
A C E. It's grace. It's the very supernatural grace of God. It is by God's grace that He chooses someone before the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. It is by God's grace that He begins to draw an unbeliever to Himself. John chapter 6. It is by God's grace the unbeliever begins to see the hopelessness of their situation. It is by God's grace that He grants them the gift of repentance and faith to believe the gospel. And it is by God's grace that He delivers us from the present evil age. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? What's the point that He calls us to action when His truth is being distorted? What's the point? Why does He want us to preserve His gospel? Why do discipleship for the purpose of keeping distortion from infecting the body? Why take a people who are consumed by sin, by their very nature are children of wrath, and call them to Himself so they will now be under the law of liberty? Why does He do it? Why does He do it? Galatians chapter 1, verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's so simple, but yet so profound. It's going to lead us into our third and final point, and I'm going to close with this one. Our deliverance is for His glory. Our deliverance is for His glory. He is glorified in our salvation. He is glorified in our sanctification. And ultimately, He is glorified in His workmanship. You see, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation screams that there is a Creator worthy of all glory. But what is even more amazing is, believer, you are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, I know I said I, when I prepared for this, it was going to take me an hour and ten minutes, but we're at the end. And we got ten minutes to spare. So I don't know if I can draw this conclusion out for ten minutes, but hey, by God's grace, we did it. Forty-five minutes. We've come to the end of this journey together this morning in the Word of God. And those of you here that are regular attenders, you've heard it said many times before from this pulpit that how you respond this morning to the Word of God will be your personal act of worship. 
And my hope, my hope is that, like I said at the beginning, God has been glorified. That's my hope. But secondly, that He will be continued to be glorified through us as He changes us through the power of His Word. Let us pray. Father, we've exhausted Your text this morning. Like I said, Lord, we simply ask that You come. We ask that You work in our minds and our hearts to transform us and to change us. And Lord, if there be someone in our midst that doesn't know You, we just simply ask that You move in their mind and in their heart. You regenerate them. You give them the gift of repentance and faith for Your glory, for Your glory. I ask these things in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen.